address Acts 3, that reading. But what a, what a great speech that is and how uh, a reminder of all the prophets point to Jesus. And that's again our question today. How does 1 Samuel point us to Jesus? So how about I, I pray for us um, and don't forget to have, have your Bible open, have your, an outline there in the bulletin, uh, have that open in front of you as well. How about I pray? Father, we do ask, and we, well, we, Lord, we thank you so much that, uh, that um, uh, Lord Jesus, you make sense of the Old Testament for us. And sometimes it is a little bit hard to follow, and sometimes connecting those dots up is tricky. So we pray that you'd help us to concentrate. We pray that you'd help us to uh, hear your words as you teach them to us, and then, Lord God, put them into practice. Um, we thank you for today. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, look, if you're a uh, rugby league fan, now, if you're a New South Wales Blues fan, you've had a bit of a tough week, haven't you? You have. Uh, especially if you've got Queensland supporting friends, um, which you shouldn't have, by the way. That's a disgrace. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. It's okay to have Queensland friends. Just don't talk to them much. Anyway, um, so, yeah, the Blues went down to those nasty cane toads from, um, from up north, uh, Queensland won, boo, 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 uh, all that, the same old routine again. Um, whatever you make of this game, this series, the, the state of origin, I, 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 I'm a bit of a sporting tragic, you know that, I watch anything with a ball, it's great, um, but it's got to be one of Australian sports' greatest rivalries, no matter what you make of, make of it. Um, it's... This might be an exaggeration. It's embedded in Australian culture, well, at least in New South Wales and in Queensland. Everyone else, they haven't really heard of it. They just watch AFL. <laughs> AFL's two hours of knock-ons, if you ask me. Anyway, that's my little sporting joke for you today. Um, so there's... And, and it's, it's a conflict, isn't it? It's a brutal competition, no matter what you make of it. A brutal competition where... As the, remember the, the old ad you might have seen on TV? It's state versus state, mate versus mate. Does anyone remember that? Am I, yeah, okay, thank you. At least someone does. That's wonderful. But it is, it's a conflict, uh, a brutal competition, a rivalry. Now, over these past few weeks, we've been reading of another rivalry that's been brewing, a conflict, if you like. And that conflict is between the power of God and human power. We remember the demand put up by the elders of Israel uh, to have a king like all the nations. Remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, that was their demand to God and, and the prophet Samuel. A human king with the power of a human king and stability and security such power could provide. But in that request, we might remember that God said, well, they've rejected me as their king. As they asked for another king, a human king, they've rejected me as their king. They were rejecting the kingdom of God for the power of a human king. Now this conflict, well it's not unfamiliar to us, is it? See, if you're a Christian person, by definition we follow Jesus Christ, Christ means king, we follow Jesus Christ as king, don't we? King over all, everything. And Jesus says that, says that by belonging to him, we belong to the kingdom of God. 
And we look forward and we pray about it. We've done it already. Sharon read from Matthew 6. Uh, we've sung about it already. We, we look forward to God's kingdom finally coming in all its fullness. But in the meantime, there's a conflict there, uh, between human power challenging God's power. You see, human wealth offers pleasures and security without any need for God. You see the conflict? You feel it? Uh, human wisdom offers understanding of life and the world without reference to God. You see the conflict? Uh, human institutions offer purpose and value without, whilst leaving God out of the picture. So if you're a Christian person, well, you know this conflict. You feel it in your life. And if you don't, I suspect Jesus probably isn't your king. So how can we resolve this conflict? How can we do that? How, if human power does in fact challenge the kingdom of God, how are the members of the kingdom of God to regard human power? As a question for us, how are we to do that? Well, let's now jump to this incredible moment in the history of Israel. Uh, God's people, Israel, where Saul is established as Israel's first king. That's where we're going. Now, at the end of chapter 11, but we didn't look much at chapter 11. Uh, you can read back over it if you like. But at the end of chapter 11, you'll see there on the screen the last few verses, Samuel had said to the people, come, let us go up to Gilgal. It's a significant spot. Uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. And there renew the kingship, renew the kingdom. Let's make a fresh start. Let's make a fresh start at Gilgal. There was a victory. Chapter 11 is all about the victory over the Ammonites. Uh, they were a neighbour. And uh, this victory over the Ammonites, led by Saul, Samuel then gathered the people together and made Saul king before the Lord. You can see it in verse 15 there. Or the NIV says, in the presence of the Lord. Same thing. Chapter 12, well, our question now then is, how, what did it mean for Saul to be made king before the Lord, in the presence of the Lord? What does that mean for, for, for Saul to be made king before the Lord or in the presence of the Lord? Chapter 12 answers that question for us. As Samuel preaches to the people gathered together there at Gilgal, his goal was the renewal of the kingdom. Verse 14, chapter 11. The real kingship where God is king. And as we hear Samuel's words, God's words, we'll hear how the conflict between human power and the kingdom of God was, well, for the time being, resolved. Okay, that's where we're heading. Hopefully you're with me. Uh, have chapter 12 open in front of you. And we're going to sum up the situation first in verse 1 and 2. Samuel begins by addressing all Israel. That, that means that this is a significant moment. He's got all Israel. This is relevant for all of God's people. And look at me verses 1 and 2. And notice how Samuel refers back to chapter 8 at Ramah. What happened at Ramah? That's where the people asked for a king just like the other nations. All right. So Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you said to me, back in chapter 8, Ramah, and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. Samuel then, in the next verse or next half of verse, he states the obvious. I'm old and you know about my dodgy sons. Well, they're here with me as well. And here's the new. Here's Saul. He's young. He's 
good looking, he's tall, all that sort of stuff. It's a little like a, well, it's a little like a trade-in. It sounds a bit like that, doesn't it? Ever done this? You know, old for the new. You drive your car into the car dealership. And there it is, the old car, rattling away. You drive it in, you get no money for it whatsoever, even though I'm hoping for something. Anyway, that's another matter. Um, you drive in, you trade in the old car, and you upgrade to a new one. Oh, doesn't it look good? It's tall and handsome and, and good-looking. It sounds like a great plan, doesn't it? That's a great plan. You know what? Samuel's speech in the next bit of chapter 12 is to ensure this does not happen. Samuel's speech is to ensure that this cannot be their thinking. Old for the new. It cannot be that way. We don't disregard the old. Samuel was setting this situation up before the people in order to make them think again to think more clearly about what you are in fact doing. Samuel argues then, well, he argues, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. The righteousness of the old order, the old model. Samuel now continues with a vindication of the old order, the old model. It, it may look a little rusted and worn, but it purrs along nicely, this old order. I think I'll drop the analogy there, actually. It's getting dodgy. Anyway, um, but you're with me. You see, see what I mean? It, over the next nine verses, then, he defends his own leadership. And then what he does, this is the righteousness of the old order, and then the Lord's past dealings with Israel when they had no king, which, of course, will cast quite a devastating light on their demand for a king, won't it? So verse 2, Samuel puts himself in the dock. God will be the judge and the accusations are invited with a new king as witness looking on, hopefully learning something about the righteousness of the old order, the old model. So halfway through verse 2. As for me, says Samuel, I'm old and grey and my dodgy sons are here with me. I have been your leader from youth until this day. Here I stand. Now, if you're a Martin Luther fan, there's significant words he quotes before he gets uh, killed, martyred. Uh, Here I stand, testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these, I will make it right. See, had he been the leader that takes, takes and takes? Had he been that sort of leader, he asks? Remember chapter 8? That was the warning. Had he been the leader that does that? Or exploits or oppresses instead of serving? Let's look at their answer. Verse 4. You have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. See, human power among God's people must never take or exploit or oppress. How, how sickening it is to read of pastors of churches are stealing or becoming rich off those they're meant to serve. It's sickening, isn't it? Human power among God's people must serve. That's what Samuel did. And of course, as Jesus said and did, I among you as one who serves, he says in Luke 22. Verse 5, Samuel said to them, 
The Lord is witness against you, and also his anointed is witness this day. That's a reference to, to Saul, actually. And that, that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. So all agree, including Saul, that the character of Samuel's leadership has been exemplary. Samuel's made his point so far. The old style of leadership has served Israel well. No one can deny that. Okay, now he moves on to his second point of his little speech here. It's now time to consider what the Lord has done for Israel, mentioning two previous leaders, Aaron and Moses, I guess as a way of comparison. So verse 6, Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your forefathers up out of Egypt. Now then, stand here. <laughs> I love those words, stand here. That sort, of phrase, that sort of tone, I think. Stand here because I'm going to confront you with the evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts before, performed by the Lord for you and your forefathers. Listen carefully, he says. Listen carefully. Things have now been switched up a little in this, uh, this courtroom, haven't they? The Lord was still the judge, but Samuel would be the accuser and the people the accused. You see? So Samuel mentions the Lord's righteous acts, which are expressions of God's faithfulness as he dealt with Israel. Samuel's purpose now was to bring the people to acknowledge all the Lord's acts of righteousness uh, that Israel had been privileged to experience, and that would expose their guilt. So verse 8, after Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your forefathers out of Egypt and settled in this place. In other words, Samuel asked the people, can you see how utterly righteous the Lord has been when he's been dealing with you over these however many years? Can you see that? I'm going to point it out again to you. Can you see it? He says there. Don't forget it. Don't forget what the Lord has done. But they did. They did forget the Lord. See in verse 9? But they forgot the Lord their God. Israel had failed to heed the warnings of Deuteronomy chapter 8. We mentioned early in the service. When Moses himself said, remember how the Lord your God led you. Chapter 8, Deuteronomy 8 verse 11 and 2, uh, 2 and 11. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. We had it up the screen early in the service. Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God. I used to love that Colin Buchanan song. I was going to, we're going to sing it today, but we sort of ran out of time a bit. Anyway, it's okay. Uh, you might remember the song. And, and people think, oh, it's a, just a, you know, it's a kid's song. It's a Colin kid's song. Remember the Lord. Oh, remember that he's in control. That's a very deep key. It's a bit higher than that. That's okay. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a kid's song. Hold on. It's not a kid's song. No, it's an adult song and a kid's song, isn't it? We ought to all remember the Lord. But that's what they'd forgotten to do. The terms of the relationship were very clear. Let me read to Deuteronomy 8.19. If you ever forget the Lord your God, Moses said, and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Very, very clear. This is just before they entered the promised land. They, those were the terms of the relationship. So when Israel was given over to their enemies, back to 1 Samuel 12 verse 9, you can read it through there if you like, God was actually being faithful to his words and promises back in Deuteronomy chapter 8. That too was the Lord's righteous acts, the Lord's righteousness. 
But there's even more to Israel's experience of the Lord's righteousness in verses 10-11. Again, we won't read it through right now, but God rescues them, delivered them when they cried out to him. That was the recurring pattern. It looked a bit like this, if you like. This is the recurring pattern of judges, and even before. I couldn't quite get my arrows straight, but you got the idea. It's a circle, right? Recurring pattern. Israel sins, God's judgment. Israel repents. God sends a saviour, a judge. Samuel being the last of those sort of judges. And then there's a period of prosperity and peace. I'll leave that up for a minute because there's something missing from one, in, one, in the story of 1 Samuel, uh, in the recent story. You see, this, this had been the recurring pattern of God's righteous dealings with Israel since the beginning. And this is what it looked like in the time of Judges. But now there'd been a new development. A new development, a new low. Well, it's a foolishness, really. So the foolishness of replacing the old order with the new. Let's look at verse 12. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was king. Now, if you're following along well here, you probably might have picked up a, a chronology issue, a time issue. You see, Nahash, that is Nahash the Ammonite, moving against Israel in Jabesh-Gilead, that's in Israel, was the reason, we read here, for them asking for a king. But we only first hear of this threat from the Ammonites in 11 verse 1. And they asked for a king, the people asked for a king way back in chapter 8. How does that work out? Well, I take it Nahash's, the Ammonite, their aggression most likely started at about the same time of the events of chapter 8. But the stories sort of come together, particularly in chapter 11, 11 verse 5 actually, when Saul hears of the threat. What's interesting here is that when the Israelites ask for a king like the nations in chapter 8, they probably had someone like Nahash in mind because he was threatening the Israelites at Jabesh-Gilead. In Israel, they were probably thinking, oh, man, we want a king like him. Look how strong and powerful it is. They were probably thinking that. And actually, in 11 verse 1, we haven't read it, but in 11 verse 1, they did try to make a deal. They tried to cut a deal with Nahash the Ammonite to survive. In other words, they said, we really want a king like this big Nahash dude. And, and here he is. Let's cut a deal with him. That's how far their sinfulness and lack of trusting God went. You see, when they asked for a king, it was clear they didn't trust God as their king. They didn't trust God would save them. They didn't trust God. They didn't trust that God would do this, send a saviour, a judge, that God would save them. They didn't trust God then. They didn't ask for deliverance or rescue. They didn't do what they'd done before. Well, consequently, Samuel says to them, as you remember all that God has done for you, the righteous acts, take a long, hard look at your chosen alternative. Here he is, standing there. Take a long, hard look at Saul, your chosen, your king. Here's the king you've chosen. I imagine Samuel was there pointing at him. Now that you've asked for a king to replace the Lord, your God... Can you see what you've done? Look at him. Well, he's tall. He's good looking. He's young. Plus some, you know. But he's not the Lord your God. 
is not the Lord your God. Now, what kind of stupidity would exchange the Lord your God for this? No offence, Saul. <laughs> what kind of stupidity would do that? What kind of blind insanity would trust this young man rather than the Lord your God? What human power above the power of God? What kind of foolishness would replace human power, human wisdom, with the things of this world over the things of God? The temporary things over eternal things. What kind of foolishness would do that? See, the truth is it's not just foolishness, isn't it? It's not just that. It's, it's, well, it's wickedness. That's what it is. It's the heart of sin that we say, this, these things of the world, this human power, this human wisdom, that's uh, more important than you, God. That's the heart of sin. You see it here in, Israel, in Israel's history. And, of course, we see it in our lives too. Okay, well, what, what, what's Israel going to do with this king? Samuel now issues an ultimatum. But it's a fresh start. It's a renewal. Samuel's ultimatum and the people's repentance. It's point four in our outline, if you're following along. Read verse 14. Let's have a look at verse 14. So, verse 14 tells us, if you, Samuel goes on, if you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord, good. Notice a couple of things. Notice if you and the king follow the Lord. In other words, you see both them and the king needed to renew that kingdom with God. What was required was repentance and the alternative was a disaster. Uh, God's hand would be against them in the next verse. It was really a simple choice. Will you and your king, you and your powerful king, you and the human power in which you have, you have placed your hopes, will you submit to the rule of another king or will you not? That's two ways to live. There it is. Right there, just pretty simple, a simple choice. You see, the crucial test of whether the Lord is your king, and it was the same back then as it is today, as Jesus himself said in John chapter 15, that the crucial test is obedience to his commands and submitting to the Lord's rule in your life. But if they refused to return to the Lord and persisted with their rejection of him and went down their own way uh, with the Lord, with their king, uh, then Israel would indeed become like all the nations. The Lord would no longer be their God and their saviour. See, this was a critical moment for Israel. No wonder Samuel started by saying, all Israel. And friends, maybe this is a critical moment for you. Maybe it is today. Will God's anointed king be your king? Now, seriously, would he be your king? Will you submit to Jesus by obeying his words, his rule, as Jesus says in John 15? Or will you continue to go your own way with your own king or human power and then become like all the nations, just like everyone else around you out there? Today is a critical moment. God is speaking by his word. God has presented us with an ultimatum. Let, let me... Let me let me give you a few more challenges <laughs> uh, and, and let me phrase it a bit differently. What are you prepared to give up for the sake of the kingdom of God? What are you prepared to give up? I hope you're making a long list right now in your head. 
See, so that you won't just be like the nations, those who do not have Jesus as their king. Perhaps at some level of comfort. That might be it. Not having as much money. Could be it. It's a big deal for everyone. We know that. Because if you've, if you've, decided, because you've decided, then you might have decided to give more so God's kingdom would be advanced. That's what you might have decided to do. And perhaps too, you've given up any Sunday commitments because you know meeting with God's people each Sunday has eternal consequences. Maybe that's it. Or perhaps you've made the commitment to invite your friend or friends to church because you desperately know they need to hear more about Jesus. And you're not scared or ashamed. You don't want to do that. And you know that Jesus is the true king above any other human power. Maybe they're some of the decisions you've made. Maybe in there there's a bit of a, an ultimatum like what was going on with Samuel and Saul and Israel. All right, well, let's continue on. What, what about, see, while they considered their choice, uh, Samuel offered up a remarkable encouragement. And we read it a moment before uh, this miracle in verses 16 to 18. We won't read it all through now. The purpose of the miracle was actually not to save them, unlike the crossing of the Red Sea coming out of Egypt. That was to save them. This purpose of this miracle was for them to see and acknowledge their sin, their foolishness. But I, I can't help but thinking right now about the young Saul watching on. Uh, basically, he's found himself caught up in these events, all outside of his control. He didn't ask to be king. This, an old Saul called to the Lord, and the thunder crashed and the rain teamed down, part of this miracle. And I sort of imagined Saul's face. Um, actually, he was meant to put a picture up here of that surprise emoji. Have you seen that? If you're an emoji person, sort of the... You know, that sort of surprise, I'm not very good at it. Think about, I think Julie Bishop, that politician, was very good at it. Um, that surprise emoji with a, dose, a good dose of fear as well. That's probably Saul right there, you know. Well, Samuel's speech and this miracle had its desired effect. The people acknowledged the seriousness of the situation and they turned to Samuel and asked him to pray <clears throat> to the Lord for forgiveness. So look at verse 19. The people all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die. And we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Uh, again, let's have some sympathy here for Saul at this moment. I can imagine this tall, young, good-looking bloke with some muscles, but sort of just shuffling his feet around like that, you know, head down. This is getting a bit awkward. Um, you know, he had become Israel's king because of the consequence of the nation's sin. So just a little bit awkward for Saul. Yeah, I'm the king I'm over here. Um, no doubt he was included in uh, the servants of Samuel who needed Samuel's prayers. We see in verse 18. Anyway, having said that, Saul's not really the interest of the narrative. Uh, the focus was on something much more, much more significant, and that's a re the renewal of the kingdom. The focus is on a fresh start. That's what it is. But there's an extraordinary thing that comes up next as we sort of tie a few things together here. It's an extraordinary statement, especially in the light of the thunder and rain and their sin. Samuel says to them in verse 20, have a look at it, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Now what possible grounds is there for Samuel to say such a thing? Do not be afraid. In the light of all that they've done, in the light of the thunder and the rain and the light and this miracle. Now let's keep reading. Verse 20, do not be afraid, Samuel replied, you have done all this evil. Can't get around it. Yet do not turn away from the Lord. 
but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they are useless. What possible grounds is there for Samuel to say, do not be afraid? See, the, the point is, he makes this point too, and we'll get back to that question in a second. The point is that all forms of human power, including kingship, to which we turn to when we turn away from the Lord, must be seen for what they are, useless. Uh, the word actually in the Hebrew is empty, really. Empty, pathetic substitutes for the Lord God. But we still need to ask, why should Israel not be afraid? And how, how is it? that there was still a future for this rebellious nation. Why should I not be afraid, even though I replace God with empty things, useless things? Why should I not be afraid? Why should you not be afraid when I replace God with useless idols? How is it there's still a future for me? How is that, How is that the case? Let's read verse 22. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people. Because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. What's the reason why I should not be afraid, even though I sin, I put things of the world before God too often? What's the reason I shouldn't be afraid? It's grace. There it is, verse 22. Grace is the reason. It's because I've been washed, I've been sanctified. I've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's why. And by the Spirit of our God. It's because I'm his. If you're a Christian person, you're his. I belong to Jesus. You belong to Jesus. You belong to the kingdom of God. That's why you should not be afraid. Do you know that? By his grace and mercy... The Lord was pleased to make me his own, just as his people Israel. That's why we should not fear. Well, we've read about the repentance. We've read some great assurance. And then right at the end, Samuel finishes his sermon, like a good three-point sermon, although we've got five today, oh well. Um, <laughs> he finishes it with the right way to live. In verses 23 to 24, halfway through verse 23, he says, And I will teach you the way that is good and right. Here it is. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he's done for you. Remember, don't forget. That's the way of life in the kingdom of God. That's the way with Jesus as your king. And the equal reality in verse 25 is, If we don't, if they don't, they'll be swept away. This is the way forward. It's pretty clear, really, isn't it? Israel would have a king, but he was never to, to replace the Lord and his prophet, his word. It was never to be a trade-in, the old for the new. Both the king and the people were to submit to the Lord's good rule under his word. You see, human power does have its place, but only when exercised in humble obedience to the Lord. Today... Uh, because the coming of God's anointed king, Jesus, the kingdom of God has been revealed with a fullness and clarity unknown to Samuel and its hearers. Today, that's what, that's what the reality is. It's not like Samuel's day. We have a fullness and clarity about the kingdom of God that Samuel's hearers didn't have. The roles of king and prophet are now fully exercised for us in Jesus. 
Romans 8 tells us that uh, he prays for us. Matthew 7 tells us that he teaches us uh, and now we wait for the day when the kingdom will certainly come with power and glory. But in the meantime, we find ourselves drawn and attracted and enticed by human power of various kinds. I mentioned a few earlier, where the kingdom of God is put up against the kingdom of this world. It's a challenge to us, just as it was to Israel. You see, well, I guess we could say, therefore, whenever any human power replaces the Lord as the object of our trust and obedience, well, what do we need to do? Ah, we need to go back to 1 Samuel 12 and remember what was told to us at Gilgal. That's what we need to do. That's a good place to start anyway. How about I pray for us? And then I'll give us a moment or two to ask a question or make a comment. Um, been a hard word for us today, I think, but a good word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, yeah, your, words, your word to us today. We thank you for that moment in Israel's history at Gilgal where, well, it was a fresh start. It was a renewal. And Lord, perhaps for us today, the same thing applies. We need to make a fresh start where we place you, Lord God, first, you, Lord Jesus, and seek your kingdom first above anything else. Lord, give us great strength to do that. Give us wisdom to do it. Give us courage to do it. And Lord, we pray as we renew this kingdom, this relationship with you, we, Lord, we, we so thank you that as people who belong to Jesus, that we belong to you, that we're part of your kingdom and we are yours. We thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let, let me just give you a chance to take a breath for a minute. And if you, uh, if you have a comment or a question, um, then um, a word of encouragement, something like that, why don't you share it with, with us? Jim. Ian's, Ian's answer, answering farming questions at Bible study recently. It's good, yeah. Is rain at the time of harvest an absolute disaster? Yeah. yeah. It must have been. Yeah. But does that mean that the rain of Saul started with Cameron then? The rain of Saul? Uh, I, I, well, I think... Um, I guess so. Yeah, no, no. I, I, I'm not quite sure the answer exactly, to be honest. But the, the rain at the time then um, was a sign of God's... Um, uh, power and also God's judgment, and it was something that would not normally happen happen at that time. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it makes sense then, as well as in the light of all that's gone on before, for for Samuel to say, "Do not fear or don't be afraid," because they've just seen this happen. What now? And everything's gone, been washed away. Um, yeah, thanks, Jim. Yeah, I didn't go into that, but. I'd, that, that's good to go into now. Yeah, yeah Kira. Uh, that's a good question too. So the, Israel was a... Um, I wish I had my map with me. Um, not a really big country and a fairly new country, really. And so there wasn't a lot of stability in the area. And so um, people wanted, as unfortunately happens a bit today... People want land, and they wanted what Israel had. And Israel, of course, had conquered the Canaanites to get to where they are now. Now, the Canaanites really, they pop up a bit now and then, but really that 
the whole, all those neighbours wanted a piece of Israel. And so the Philistines were toward the west, if you've got your map in your head, so towards the, the Mediterranean Sea, mostly down that sort of area, and then the Ammonites were toward the east. And Jabesh Gilead, where they first had a go in chapter 11, that's sort of the, um, uh, just a bit above, about, oh, about 50 k's or 100 k's north of Jerusalem, if that helps. If not, look at a map. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they were, and they wanted what Israel had. They wanted, you know, they wanted the land to be powerful, be like Egypt, who were really powerful. They had a lot of land. Things haven't changed much, have they? No, in that part of the world, yeah. And also Israel too, um, funny enough, was actually quite fertile compared to, um, to the east, toward, more toward the desert. Um, it was quite fertile, so people want fertile land, grow crops, be more powerful sort of thing, yeah. Thanks, Kara. Any other questions, comments? All right, excellent. How about we, uh, we stand, take a stretch, we'll sing together.